father's lightsaber. What? Lightsabers, precious? Welcome to What's Lightsabers Precious, Lord of the Rings and Star Wars Encyclopodcast, where we waste time on fictional wikis. My name is Ryan. My name is Joanna. So, a friend of mine sent me a pretty interesting article from 2001. It's from the New Yorker, which is like pretentious as hell at all times. With the funniest captions on the comics you could ever have. They're so droll. Oh, God. Spare me. Yeah. Um, it's not like my favorite venue. However... Why this is interesting is because it came out, like, literally, I think, like, a week, maybe, before The Fellowship of the Ring came out. An old article. So it's an old article, and so they're using the occasion of the impending release of the movie to discuss Tolkien and his writing. And I think it's pretty interesting. The further you read on this article, the more pretentious it gets. And in the last paragraph, it contains a part that made me literally groan aloud. So basically what you're telling us is... Don't read it. No, I think you should read it. I think it's interesting. I think that maybe you should, like, you know, leave it three quarters of the way through. Because at the end, he says, It is a book that bristles with bravado, and yet to give into it, to cave into it, as much of us did on a first reading, betrays a certain nerdishness, a reluctance to face the finer shades of life that verges on the cowardly. That is why boys have traditionally been fonder of it than girls, who are less phased and flummoxed at the prospect of growing up. Women leave their girlhood behind with a glance, whereas men keep looking over their shoulders at the vanishing shire and asking themselves if it might still be possible or proper to head back to their hole in the ground. So as a girl who gave away her childhood with a glance, how do you feel about this article? I just, like, why did he have to put that part in? That is so obnoxious. Like, what, in what, how is he in any position to talk about how hard or not hard it is for girls to grow up? That is swerving so far out of his lane. He's, like, on a different expressway. It's obnoxious because I think, as any woman could tell you, it is extremely difficult. Yeah. Mostly because of straight white dudes like this guy. The patriarchy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the patriarchy. Also, I... Love Lord of the Rings. How dare you say more boys than girls like Lord of the Rings? I don't think that's even accurate. He's kind of throwing shade on the fans of Tolkien who are women, you know? A little bit of, like, fake nerd girl stuff. Maybe. Kind of like, like, the only reason a girl would read it is if she was, like, exceptionally immature. Like, we boys are. We can't help being immature. We just are. Right, boys? Boys will be boys. Am I right, boys? It all shades into that. It's very annoying. But... There are parts earlier in the article that are interesting, so I will post it on our Facebook page. Neat. Yes. Uh, what about you? Do you uh, have any Star Wars news? Well, first thing, we do have to do our final update on Mark Hamill's cryptic one-word tweets, that thrilling series you've been following for the last two episodes. Did he finish it? He did. Is it on, the name of the movie? On September 25th, the sentence was complete. Allow me to introduce this title of episode nine. The purpose of annoying everyone with my inane tweets is distracting from my birthday. Oh, no! (laughs) He turned 67 on September 25th. Happy birthday, Mark! Yes, happy birthday, Mark. Happy birthday, dude! That's awesome! It's kind of like, it's 67. That seems like simultaneously, like, too old and too young. Yeah, I know, but he's like, Like, he's very youthful, still in his, you know, age, just a number, baby. Yeah, man, he's still doing well. I mean, he's young enough to make 
to to extend the effort to do 14 days worth of one word tweets to create the sentence. <laughs> That's so, true. Good job. That is a young person's troll. It is. It well is. done, Mark Hamill. Yes, he, he trolls like the teens. He's great. Mark Hamill, he's lit. Mark Hamill's a big mood. <laughs> It's giving me life right now. Oh, man, Mark Hamill, I am living. I am living. We're teens, guys. Mark Hamill is bae. Mark Hamill is a big mood. That's what the teens say. <laughs> That's what the teens say. Hello, my fellow teens. Other news, Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney, has said they're going to slow their roll on these Star Wars movies coming out because he realized, oh, whoops, I released two Star Wars movies within five months of each other. And it hurt the second one's chances in the box office. Who could have thought that would happen? Did it? Did it, Bob? So did it? Did it, Bob? Bob. And so now, Bob. so now, there's a few things coming out of this. His first thing is to make it so there's only one project in a given medium at a time. So episode nine is a new movie. Yeah. Star Wars Resistance is the new animated show, and then there's John Favreau's live action show. So they have three projects. That's all they're working on at the moment. I think that's probably a good idea. Probably safe. Uh, the only downside to this revelation he had this past week is that he also said they're going to use less kind of uh, unusual filmmakers. They're going to go with more reliable people. So they don't have all the, all the crazy drama they had with solo. So basically they're capitulating to all the jerks on Reddit and 4chan. In a way. Yeah. Well, that's too bad. That's Hollywood though. You know? Yeah. And they also realize they're kind of competing with themselves because they released infinity war. Around yes. the same time? Yes, and they so, did. Yes, they did. And they're kind of realizing, oh, crap, we're kind of have too many too many pies going out that our fingers are in. So we got to like slow down. Bob. So anyway, that that was... Hey, Bob. So we're going to be able to look forward to... Fewer Star Wars movies. Fewer Star Wars movies. Look forward to that. We're still going to be looking... We're still going to get a Star Wars movie every year, even after we die. So don't worry about that. Yeah. Um, it's going to outlive us as a society. And I still feel like one a year is probably fair. It's probably good. Anywho, what are you talking about today? Well, Ryan, I think that Michael Fassbender has said it best. Today I'm talking about... My beautiful best, Jenny. Your beautiful bestiary. My beautiful bestiary. That's from Alien Covenant, if you haven't seen <laughs> it. Um, Ryan and I are huge apologists for Prometheus and Alien Covenant. Mostly because we love David. We love Michael Fassbender's character now, a lot. All people dunk on those movies, but if you watch them as David as the main character... It's much better. You don't got to worry about the humans making dumb decisions because they're setting themselves up to be victims of David. It's yeah, great. so David can win. It's awesome. And Alien Covenant takes a hard left turn into full-on goth romance horror. Yeah, David has a castle. He has like a, a castle. A Dracula castle. A dra- he has a Dracula castle full of weird anatomical drawings, weird anatomical experiments. And at one point he gestures to all his experiments and calls it his beautiful best cherry. It's so good. So it's so good. If you haven't watched those movies, you're watching them again with David as the main character, and you'll enjoy them. You'll a lot enjoy more. more. <laughs> Absolutely. Anywho, so you're talking about a bestiary. Are these a, is this a bestiary of Middle Earth creatures? This that was a really weird way to say creatures. Yes, it is. It is Middle a bestiary. Earth creatures. Creatures. In your beautiful bestiary. My beautiful bestiary of creatures. Ooh. So. Unlike George Lucas and everybody else who has played in his sandbox, Tolkien didn't usually invent his own animals, like, completely from scratch. Okay. So you'll get, you know, like, a lot of mythological creatures drawn from various world literatures, but you generally won't get, like, crazy everyday animals. I mean, he did invent a few unusual ones, like hobbits and horses. Okay. <laughs> 
did. He did. Tolkien, Those aren't Tolkien was the father of that archetype of the horse. You'll notice every fantasy book since then, horses are in it. Thank you, Tolkien, for introducing that. Thanks for copying his beautiful original creature, Do Not Steal, the horse. <laughs> he, put, he put horses under a Creative Commons license. There's OC. Original creature. Do not steal. No, uh, because the events of these works are meant to have taken place on our own planet Earth. So the everyday animals in the Lord of the Rings are pretty much what we have now, right? Dogs, rabbits, birds, cats, deer. But what he did tend to do was take the animals that everybody's familiar with and make them really crazy. So like a dog in a straitjacket. This dog's nuts. I'm crazy. That was, wow. That was so realistic. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I I sitting right next to a dog did in a straitjacket. Did you feel like you were there? I did. Yeah, I thought you would. But setting aside dogs in straitjackets, let's talk about dogs that are possessed by demons. What? They have those in Lord of the Rings? Oh, they do. They're called wargs. Oh, wait. The things that the, the orcs ride around. Now. Yes. The things that kind of look like a hybrid of a wolf and a hyena in the Peter Jackson movies. Yeah. That's kind of their own creative interpretation in those movies. Like, Tolkien doesn't necessarily describe them that way. But anyway, wargs are such a staple of fantasy now that it's easy to forget that the term wasn't really around before Tolkien. Really? If you read fantasy novels before Tolkien, you will not find wargs in them. Hmm. Interesting. So Tolkien derived the word warg from an old English term warg and an old high German word warg and an old Norse word varger. And all of them are translating extremely literally to strangler or choker. I don't think of wargs as stranglers or chokers. Well, when wolves fight, what do they do? They clamp on the jugular. I guess that's strangling and choking. That's strangling and choking. That's like what you do when you strangle and choke someone. Now that I think someone. of it, that's strangling and choking. Come to think of it, wait a tick. Hold on a sec. Strangling and choking is that. It's that thing that they do. So the word in within the Tolkien legendarium is specifically understood to be a northern Manish term that caught on throughout the Westlands. It's kind of like a cool nickname. In the real world, the Norse term varger was a common synonym for wolf. Oh, okay. The Old English wayarg on the other hand, was used only to mean an outlaw or hunted criminal. Okay. In Old Norse mythology, wargs, or varger, is particularly used to describe the wolf Fenrir and his son Skull and Hattie. Do you uh, remember Fenrir of from course. Norse mythology? Big scary wolf, yeah. And I think, didn't J.K. Rowling name a character after Fenrir as well? He was one of the werewolves, He yeah. was like the evil werewolf guy. So Tolkien essentially invented the modern concept of wargs as bigger, scarier versions of wolves. Dire wolves, if you will. Yeah! Basically. So, I mean, like, they are a breed of wolves, but they're worse than other breeds because they are literally possessed by demons. Now, have we talked about if demons exist in the Middle Earth? Well, they obviously do because in various letters that he wrote, Tolkien straight up called these wargs demonic. And he was Catholic. He definitely believed demons were a real thing. Huh. Yes. Evil spirits, I guess you could say, if you don't want to go for, like, the super, the term that's more associated with Christianity. Right. I mean, I guess the closest thing to a demon in Middle Earth I can think of is, like, a Balrog, right? Yeah, that's like a demon. Right. Like an evil, evil spirit. It's evil like, demon. Like a little chunks spirit. of those guys in a warg? If you want to think about it that way. Yeah, Yikes. presumably. So if you look at this truly freaky painting of a warg that I found, which was painted by um, the Tolkien artist John Howe. Yeah. I think you'll agree that they are some frightening nonsense. Oh, that is scary. It's got like a skull face. Yeah, it's got a skull face. And it's like got fiery eyes. Burning cinders for pupils. It is frightening. Yeah. It we'll, is frightening. We'll post some of these pics. We absolutely will with, with the, this with episode. The episode. So you can like just see how possessed by demons, like how dark sided this thing wow. is. Wow. 
So we don't know how or where wargs were created. There's a theory that they were bred by Morgoth in the very early days of the world. So in that case, he would have made Balrogs, dragons, and wargs, other stuff. I mean, he wanted to win the uh, dog show. Sure, sure. He's doing a lot of animal husbandry. His own custom breed. He had to bring his wargs in, and they just qualified them for too many demons. Their haunches were also too high when they trotted. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about a beautiful bestiary. Yeah. Uh, so wargs apparently stayed loyal to Morgoth's protege Sauron after Morgoth got launched into space. I mean, yeah, they're like they're like homeless dogs. They're Basically, dogs. they're like, "Where's our master? We need a new forever home." Yeah, and Sauron gave them that forever home because Gandalf lists wargs among Sauron's servants in the late Third Age. Okay. And as everybody probably remembers from the Peter Jackson movies, wargs were frequently allied with orcs and they were used as mounts. But what you didn't see in the movies was that they were sentient and could talk. Whoa. Yes. Hold on. I don't know if I could ride on something that could talk back to me. It can't because it's not speaking common. It's speaking, quote, the dreadful language of the wargs. So I don't know what that sounded like, but it was dreadful. There are two wolves in the Tolkien universe that are said to be the greatest of their kind. And these are wargs? Uh, these are, yeah, war. I mean, they're called wolves, but they're wargs because they're evil. So, okay, I don't okay, know. Okay. It's got, like, like, kind of convoluted, but. Are there nice wolves in Middle Earth? They're, I don't know if they're nice wolves, but I think presumably there are wolves that aren't possessed by evil spirits. I mean, the ones I played against in that Super Nintendo Lord of the Rings <laughs> game were huge jerks. So. They were so annoying. But then again, two slashes with the sword and they turned into a pile of bows. So. Yeah, that's true. No demon popped you know, out, so. Yes. All right, so the first of these great wolves was called Draugluin, and originally Tolkien derived that name from an old Norse term meaning fear phantom, which is righteous as hell. Also sounds kind of like Dracula. It does kind of sound... Draugluin! Draugluin! But later, Tolkien retconned that etymology, and he said it was elvish, so at this point it appears to mean blue wolf, which isn't as cool. That's like a fursona. Yeah, like my first one is a blue wolf. Oh, cool. Mine is like a pink liger. Oh, mine is... A fear phantom. A fear phantom. <laughs> That's my persona is a fear phantom. But anyway, Draugluin was a servant of Sauron and also the daddy of all Sauron's werewolves. Whoa. I don't know who the mom was. Oh, okay. I don't know if we want to know that. On the island of werewolves, huh? Me, yes. Uh, well, uh, no, actually, the island of werewolves might have been a totally different crop. Okay. I know, this is very confusing. So this suggests that Draugluin must have been at least somewhat supernatural, because he was the father of all the werewolves, right? And yeah. the Silmarillion describes him as, quote, old and evil. So, like, is he some kind of semi-immortal spirit? We don't know. Is it maybe, like, figurative speech calling him the father of all werewolves? No, like, he literally fathered them. Oh, wow. Okay. Like, literally, he made all these werewolves. Okay. With his loins. Amazing. Anyway, Drogluin got killed by Huan, the magic talking dog. And Baron used his pelt to disguise himself during his quest for a Silmarell. Oh, I seem to remember that evil wolf from that story. Didn't you mention that? Well, you're probably thinking of Karkaroth. Yeah. Which means either Fangmaw or Redmaw, both of which are awesome. Yeah, those are good names. He was a descendant of Draugluin. So you know he was a bad bitch. Fangmaw. Fangmaw or Redmaw. So in fact... I love those Jack Glendon novels. <laughs> The law of tooth and red maw. (laughs) In fact, Karkaroth was the wolf that bit Baron's hand off to get the Silmaril. Yeah, I do remember that. And then the burning of the jewel inside Karkaroth's guts drove him insane. He ran around tearing stuff up until Huan killed him. So Huan's got two wolf kills Kills. on his his count. Yeah, he does. His KD ratio is amazing. He's got his KD. Well, fortunately, nobody was there KSing. That makes it easier. (laughs) A couple notches on his bedpost there. Yeah. Can you use that for kills, or is that only for sex? Well, with me, they're the same thing. 
Are you a praying mantis by any chance? Clack, 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 clack. Oh, okay. The mandible should have given it away. Yeah. Uh, in that battle, you might vaguely remember that Juan killed Karkaroth, but both Juan and Baron died. Right. As for what happened to the wargs, they must have died out sometime before our present age. So maybe Sarah Palin sniped them from a helicopter? <laughs> I don't know. Aerial wolf kills? Oh, I always thought that aerial wolf kill would be like a really good name for an assassin. You'd be like an Israeli special ops guy. He's like, it is I, uh, uh, aerial wolf kill. <laughs> I killed a wolf from helicopter. You're basically doing Sasha Baron Cohen's uh, character from Aaron America. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Which is definitely the best character from that show. Anyway, that's Wargs. That's Wargs. Cool. Now let's talk about Oliphants, which are one of my favorites. Oh, they're so good. They're such a good name. There's a really good name. And you may have noticed that they are a good animal. They're just big old elephants with lots of tusks. Right. They're crazy ass big elephants. The tusk, the lots of tusks thing was an invention for the Peter Jackson movies. Although Tolkien doesn't say they didn't have lots so of tusks. So basically what you're saying is they did. But I think what we should focus on is how big they were. How big so, is an elephant? Tolkien tells us that their legs were as big as trees. Their bodies were larger than a house, and they had enormous sail-like ears, and they also had a long snout that was like a huge serpent. Now, this might sound crazy, but all those are really big things. Those are really big, which means that the Oliphants were also Put them all together, they're going to be the biggest. It was the biggest. He also tells us it was basically impossible to kill one unless you shot it directly in the eye. Oh, weak spot. Weak spot. And I think there's a part in the Battle of Pelennor Fields... Where Legolas shoots one at the base of the skull into the brainstem? Or am I thinking of the troll from Moria? He does that to the troll. But doesn't he also do it to... He does some stunts off Oliphants. Because he does kill one and then he like surfs off its nose. And then Gimli says that still only counts as one. Only counts for one. So I think that he did that there. He should have shot it in the eye if he wanted to kill it. Just saying. Small discrepancy there. Arrows had a hard time penetrating their hides, and if you were on horseback, your horse would just refuse to get close. Like, it would get the hell up out of there. Horses are wise creatures. Horses are very wise. Horses, as invented by J.R.R. Tolkien, yeah, yeah. are very wise like, creatures. Yeah. <laughs> now, the etymology of the term oliphant is pretty easy because it's a real ancient English word meaning elephant. So, so they like, didn't know how to talk back enough. then. They didn't. No. Everybody's really stupid. They're like, is this how you pronounce it? And someone else would be like, I don't think so. They'd be like, whoa, this is how I pronounce it now. Oliphant. That's how I'm saying it. That's how I'm saying it now. Anyway, whether or not Oliphants are supposed to be the direct ancestors of modern elephants or a separate species isn't totally clear. Okay. But Tolkien does state that they were never seen again after the Battle of Pelennor Fields on March 15th, 3019 of the Third Age. Where'd they go? I don't know. They ain't around now. They go to Valinor? Well... It's actually possible that they persisted after that date, but it was in a place where the Whitey Whites up in Middle Earth didn't know about them. Oh, okay. Because the thing is, Oliphants were native to the land of the Haradrim, right? Harad in the far south, which meant that Northerners never saw one or even knew if they actually existed. Okay. So that's why Sam just about craps when he sees an Oliphant in Athelion, because Oliphants existed in Hobbit legends, but for all he knew, they were totally made up like leprechauns. Or aliens. And to a hobbit, it'd be, like, even bigger. Oh, yeah, to a hobbit, yeah. Oh, just imagine. It'd be, like, the most massive thing he ever saw. Nothing's that big in the The world. The only hobbit who's ever seen anything bigger is probably Bilbo when he saw Smaug. Yeah, true. Like, that is huge. But, speaking of Herod, by the way, the Haradrim didn't call the Oliphants Oliphants. They called them Mumakil. Mumakil. This is one of very few words we have from the language of the Haradrim. Okay. Um, We don't know the etymology of the word because we just don't know much about Harad. 
But we do know that the Haradrim somehow tamed Oliphants and strapped giant carriage-like tiered towers on their backs. I mean, I gotta kind of respect them for that. That's gotta be challenging. To not only, like, wriggle, you know, wrangle those guys into submission, but also get a tower on their back. I'm not sure they did it very nicely, though. But it shows some moxie that I, you know, you don't expect. That's true. That's true. They did do it in the service of evil. Well, we don't know if they initially did it in the service of evil. It's always evil to ride an elephant. Don't ride elephants. Elephants are smart and lovely creatures. And you will hurt them if you ride on them. It does not feel good for them. From those towers, though, the Haradrim archers and spearmen threw projectiles down at their enemies. And then the Oliphants would get, like, well pissed off at this treatment. And so they'd go trampling over everything. So combatants, horses, anything that was in the way. So they were, like, the most unstoppable killing force that anyone had ever seen. Amazing. BT dubs, after Sauron was defeated, Sam actually went wandering around Athelion trying to find the Oliphant he had seen later, but he never located it. Aww. Poor Sam. And in fact, no one in Middle-earth ever saw one again. What'd they do with the big dead one that Legolas killed? I don't exact. I don't know like what is meant to have happened to it in canon. I guess they just let it rot, or they ate it, or they burned it. I don't know what they did. There were some big cool bones they could put in like a museum or something. That would be cool. But maybe they did. It doesn't say they didn't. Yeah. But here's the kind of interesting aside about that dead Oliphant. So during the filming of Peter Jackson's trilogy, Weta had to make a life-size dead Oliphant super last minute for the scene where Pippin finds Mary lying injured on the battlefield. Right. Uh huh. So this stressed Weta the hell out. Oh well, yeah, but it's, it's, it's really a huge last thing. minute. But the dead Oliphant in the field later became a favorite picnic destination for crew members. Oh, that's adorable. So they'd be like, hey, meet me by the, uh, you know, by the dead elephant in the field. <laughs> they would all go out there and have their lunch. Oh, man. I bet that looked cool from the sky, too. Like, you? flying over it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> big dead elephant. giant dead Oliphant. Be like, what the hell? Can you imagine if people, like, met and then got engaged by the dead elephant in the field? Oh, that would be adorable. That would be so cute. Like, where'd your, where'd your parents meet? Well, there was this giant fake dead elephant in a field yeah. in New Zealand, and... So, what they could do at their wedding, they could have the both, like, during their wedding vows, they could be like, there's only two of us, but now that we're married, we count as one. The big dead elephant, get it? It's like Gimli's thing. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, I get it. It took me a second, but Yeah, I, I saw the look on your face, like, you were just like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, this... We now only count as one. Is how you should have said it. And then I would have gotten it. Because <laughs> the line is, that still only counts as one. Okay. It was a good concept. The execution was just in need of a little polish. Thanks. That's all, right? I'm so glad. Let's continue. I'm sorry I ruined your joke. It's fine. Eagles. Eagles. Eagles will cheer you up. So you might think eagles are kind of boring compared to wargs and oliphants, but that's not true. That's not true. I'm American. I think eagles are the most beautiful creature that ever did live. When they cry, they make rocket fuel. Well, in that case, you're going to die of, like, a priapism because we are going to talk about some flippin' eagles. So the eagles were actually inhabited by spirits akin to the Maiar, meaning they are basically demigods like Gandalf and Sauron and so on. So on the same level as Gandalf? So, wow, okay. When Iluvatar first made the eagles, also, he made them huge. Like on purpose? Yes, yes. He didn't just, like, get the, the numbers off a little bit, like, oh, crap. It's like, oh, no, dang it! <laughs> it's like if you're making something in, like, Second Life or something, yeah. and you get the scaling wrong, and suddenly it's, like, the size of the world, and your computer <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> crashes. Um, because you tried to make an avatar of, like... 
a golf cart. <laughs> anyway, we were both in marching band, correct? We were. Yes, in high school. So picture the football field from our high school. Yeah, that's a big, that's a big field. Yes. Now imagine one of the original eagles that Iluvatar made was sitting like around the 25-yard line, which I know there's no line drawn at 25 yards, but this is the best example I could come okay, up with. Okay, okay. So the eagle's sitting halfway between the 20-yard line and the 30-yard line, okay? And it spreads its wings. Yeah. One wing is going to reach all the way to the 50-yard line halfway across the field. The other one is going to reach clear into the end zone. Wow, that's a big... That's huge. Because this eagle's wingspan is 180 feet or half a football field. Dang. Damn. So that's Thorondor, the Lord of the Eagles during the First Age. Like, that is crazy. That is the size of a dragon. Yeah, dude. Like, that is a huge bird. I want to see him fight. Well, he did fight. We'll get to that in a second. So fortunately for the free peoples of Middle-earth, Thorondor and his kind were stand-up dudes. I hope so. During the First Age, they lived in the mountains that encircled the hidden city of Gondolin, which were called creatively the Encircling Mountains. Yeah. And they guarded Gondolin from Morgoth's forces until the city, unfortunately, <laughs> fell. From that same place in the mountains, Thorondor once swooped down to attack Morgoth himself and actually raked Morgoth's actual face with his actual talons. Now, how big is Morgoth? Because if you do that, like... That would take your whole face off. He must have been pretty big if, like, because I feel like one talent is going to be easily bigger than a dude's head. Yeah. So he must have been bigger than your average dude. Bigger than the average dude. <laughs> that's a good Morgoth impression. That's a good, that's a good Morgoth. That's what he says after he steals a picnic basket. <laughs> So, that is extremely cool. Uh, we don't know what happened to Thorondor later on, so possibly he died of old age, or maybe since he was a spirit akin to a Maya, he was able to achieve eternal life in Valinor. At any rate, we don't hear anything more about him after the first age. So would Sauron be Boo-Boo then? Yeah. Okay. Would. Sauron would be Boo-Boo. Hey, hey, Sauron. Hey, hey, Sauron. Well, I don't know about this, Morgoth. <laughs> I don't know what's on my troopy dog. Yeah, a little bit. That's okay. Keep going. All right. Mailed Valar. So in the Second <laughs> Age, we know there were eagles living on the island kingdom of Numenor. Mm-hmm. So specifically, these eagles lived around Meneltarma, the Pillar of Heaven, which was like the holiest of the holies on the island. Meneltarma was holy because it was consecrated to Iluvatar. Okay. So it's basically like the Grand Temple, and this is where the Numenorians went to worship. Meneltarma was known for its great silence, which was uninterrupted even by birdsong, which sounds very, very creepy. And if I walked into a place that was uninterrupted even by birdsong, I would think it was cursed. Well, you would be cast out almost immediately because you're like really loud. <laughs> I can be, I can be quiet. I can go on. It's fine. This, it's just your thing. You're just your thing. You make noises a lot. But like, what noises? Like talking? Yeah, most of those. Okay, most of those. <laughs> you make most of those talking noises. You no, know, some you're not so good at, but some you can make. The only birds around, right? So no bird song. So the only birds that were there were the eagles, and they were said to watch over the sacred land. Now, are those guys silent? Because if movie, Yes, they were silent. If movies about America teach me anything, they're constantly going... Because like, ah! Now, interesting fact, that sounds actually a hawk. Yeah, eagles don't actually sound like it's that. It's a red-tailed hawk sound. Eagles would make a much more lame noise. Like, it's not majestic. What's an no. eagle noise like? <laughs> oh, it's no, it's not. It is not that. Yes. <laughs> That's what they sound like? Sounds like they're laughing at me. It sounds like a middle-aged woman laughing. That's an eagle sound? It's an eagle sound. It sounds like a robin. That does not... <coughs> that sounds like a guy. That yeah. sounds like a dude going... Ah, ah, ah. That's what eagles sound like, huh? Yeah. So imagine that, but probably like 
a lot deeper and cooler sounding from these Iluvatar eagles. Yeah, I guess so. But they were holding that in on the Holy Mountain, presumably. So the Numenorians called them the Witnesses of Manwe because they were considered the guardians of that holy space. Yep. And the common people of Numenor could come and go to Meneltarma as they wished, but there would always be three eagles watching them the whole time. Creepy. Like, making sure they didn't get wacky. I know, this sounds like the creepiest house of worship ever. It's I think I probably, creepy. It's creepy. I probably would have joined Sauron's cult of Morgoth. In the Third Age, we have the Eagles of the Misty Mountains, and these are the eagles that offered... Assists in the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. Okay. So they lived on an area called the Great Shelf, which was a pinnacle on the east side of the main mountain range of the Misty Mountains. Yeah. And by this point, they were pretty aloof from Elvish or Manish affairs. So gone are the days where they're intervening in wars and stuff. Yeah. Well, I guess that's not true. They did intervene to stop the Battle of Five Armies, but that was Mm -hmm. sort of a special event. Uh, people like Gandalf and Radagast could sometimes call in favors, is why. And the leader of the group of eagles was Gwaihir, who rescued Gandalf twice. Well, three times if you believe that he was also the eagle that rescued him in The Hobbit. Okay. But we don't know for sure. But anyway, in Lord of the Rings, he rescues him once from the pinnacle of the Tower of Orthanc, where Saruman had Gandalf trapped. Mm-hmm. And then he rescues him again once after Gandalf fought the Balrog to the death and then died and came back with Jesus. By the way, though the eagles at this time were immense, as seen in all the adaptations, they weren't anywhere near Throndor's size, and though they could carry other creatures on their backs, it seems to have been at least somewhat taxing for them. So, like, mm-hmm. Gwahir carries Gandalf from Orthanc to Edoras, and then he's like, I'm done, dude. You got those hollow bones. Like, I am done. I You're know weighing I'm me weak. down. You're weighing me down. This hurts. I can't catch You're throwing sick, out my lower back. These sick air drafts. I can't sick catch thermals. them. And if you look at a map of Middle-earth, Orthanc to Edoras isn't actually that far, right? Oh, come on. So it's not. Well, it's don't, not. Don't, don't be a little gore hair. No, listen, there's a reason I say that. Because my final topic is why didn't the Eagles carry Frodo to Mount Doom? Yeah, why didn't they? Why didn't they? That seems to be the thing a lot of people say. Well, people seem to think that this is like a huge gotcha question. Plot hole, baby. Like, yeah, the one thing that's unrealistic in a world filled with trolls, dragons, and talking dogs. Yep, you found it. The you, one you hole. And you can tell it pisses Tolkien fans off because in Cyclops. Encyclopedia of Arda's article on eagles is one sentence of general info about eagles and 12 paragraphs of discussion on why they couldn't use the eagles to take the ring to Mount Doom. Okay, can you explain some of these reasons? (laughs) Yes. So problem one, getting in touch with the eagles. So this would have required either physically traveling to the Misty Mountains or Gandalf happening to bump into one of his moth friends, which isn't a sure thing. Like, Well, the moths, you can't just like call them off? No, he can't just summon them. Otherwise, why would he have stayed on top of the Tower of Orthanc for so long? He well, would have just summoned them immediately. I thought it took a very long time for a moth to get up there. No! They got little wings, you know? Don't think that it's like they're at his every beck and call. Okay. So there is some suggestion that maybe the Council of Elrond considered contacting the eagles through Radagast. In the book, we're told both that Radagast was friendly with the eagles and also that the council looked for him and couldn't find him. So if they'd been able to find Radagast's brown wizard ass, maybe it would have been a very different book. Yeah, but what was I don't he know. doing during that time? What was Radagast ever doing? He just like totally checked out from society. His mind was addled by mushrooms. Well, that's what Saruman says, because he's the ultimate square. I'm straight edge. He's so st- But then again, if he's so straight edge, why did he have all that pipe weed stored at, at, at Orthanc? True. Mm-hmm. 
I think someone was partaking in the sticky icky. Projecting a little bit, are we? So problem two was carrying a passenger all the way to Mordor. As we mentioned before, Gwaihir was reluctant to carry Gandalf any further than Orthanc to Edoras. And even though Frodo is a much lighter burden, Rivendell to Mount Doom is a hell of a lot further than Orthanc to Edoras. You can take some breaks along the way. Mm, you could, I suppose, but problem three is the most important problem. The main advantage the council has is stealth, right? And using the eagles would have totally blown that because it's not very stealthy. In The Lord of the Rings, the heroes are basically exploiting Sauron's ultimate blind spot. Because he's so power hungry, he assumes that everyone else is equally power hungry. Which means, in his mind, whoever has the ring is naturally going to try to use it, at which point he'll be able to find them and get the ring back. Right? The idea that someone would have the ring and then try to destroy it is totally beyond his conception. Ooh, okay. So that's why he leaves Mount Doom totally unguarded. No one's going to come here. Because he thinks, like, anybody who gets it, what, what's always happened in the past is someone gets it and they try to use it. Right. That's always what has happened in the past. Nobody's ever tried to destroy it. So that's why he leaves Mount Doom unguarded. And if he were to see the eagles flying toward Mount Doom carrying the ring, he probably would have been able to put two and two together and revise his strategy. He's got a big old eye there. He's going to see all that He's stuff. He's going to see them flying. Another weak spot the Fellowship is exploiting is the fact that Saruman underestimates hobbits. Yeah. So he doesn't keep much of an eye on them, and he doesn't know that their ultimate superpower is being really corruption-resistant. And very soft feet. Good very for sneaking. Soft feet. They're very good at sneaking. They're super good at sneaking. That is canon. Uh, I'm not even sure Sauron knew what a hobbit was until he had to send the ringwraiths to the Shire to look for Bilbo. So, as you can see, a hobbit stealthing his way through Middle-earth on foot is a much better tactic than an eagle winging its way through the air. The end. Could an uh, eagle put on the ring? I don't know. It changes size based on your finger. So you think it could get big enough to put... On a talon, yeah. Presumably it would a have to get big enough A big, invisible eagle. I really wonder. I don't know how corruption-resistant eagles are. I think it's a bad idea. He'd be able to see the eagle once he mm. put the ring on anyway. I mean, like, he can already see it because it's flying through the air, but I think that's a bad idea. Yeah, probably. I think that's an idea that could be classified as bad. It'd be like an invisible plane, though. It'd be sweet. <laughs> Just like the ones Trump made, right? Yeah. You can't see it. It's you not there, folks. It. It's you, can't, you can't attack an invisible plane. You can't attack it. You can't see it. You, you can't, can't attack it. it. It could be right there, and you won't see it because it's invisible. Because <laughs> that's how stealth planes work. Anyway, we're getting too political with this. Let's talk about Star Wars. Well, I must confess to you, dear listener, uh, we colluded this week on our episode theme. Much like how Trump colluded with the Russians. Sorry, am I too political for you right now? Far too political. Then again, I was like dunking on Sarah Palin for stuff from like 15 years ago. Listen, (laughs) Donnie Drumpf, if you're listening to this, and I know you are, kiss my grits. Anyway. He listens to all media, basically, at all times. So we're on Fox News constantly. Okay. We are, we are. We are on Fox News all the time. But no, I too am covering... My beautiful bestiary. But this time, from a Star Wars. Beautiful bestiary of the Star Wars. Yeah. And so I picked one creature from the original trilogy, like from each movie. Yeah. So I'm talking about three creatures as well. So let's start with our representative from A New Hope, uh, the Dianaga. I've never heard of a Dianaga. You've seen one, though, because it's the monster in the trash compactor in the Death Star. I feel like all you really see is, like, a tentacle. You see a tentacle, you see an eye. You see an eye. You do see an eye. So Dianaga are cephalopods, like an octopus or a squid. And they can grow up to be 10 meters in length. So we're talking, like, big old boys. Yeah. Most are about 5 or 6 meters, though. They had a single eye stalk, which protruded out of the water to stalk their prey. And they had seven suckered tentacles surrounding a fanged maw. Contain a sharp serrated probe. Now, why seven? Because that's not like 
symmetric. Because it's Star Wars, and it's not an octopus, you guys. It's got seven tentacles. Oh, okay. Just to distinguish it from an octopus. Here's a picture of one of uh, its full body. You only see the eye and the tentacle in the movie. But Ew. under the water, looks like that. That's gross. I don't like Pretty it. Pretty gross, huh? Average mass is about 95 kilograms, so about 209 pounds, one of these boys. Okay. For a five meter wide one. Uh, they're native to a planet called Vodrin, which was a swampy planet in Hut space. Yeah. That was later taken over by the Empire, which will make sense in a little bit why the Dianaga might be significant in the Death Star. Um, How it ended up there is what Right, I right, right. Know. Their big thing is that they're great at camouflage. So, like uh, like octopus. No, like an octopus at all. These are totally different. They but guess, but they but, seven but octopi can also. Oh, but it has seven but tentacles. But tell okay. me this: Can an octopus turn transparent when it's hungry? I don't know if it does it specifically when it's hungry. It can probably turn transparent though. And can an octopus change color based on what it ate last? I think it. It's more effective to change color based on your environment, not on what you ate. I was like camouflage if you change color based on what you ate. Listen. That's not camouflage. I don't make the rules. Unless you ate something pink and you happen to be in a pink environment. So basically, if you want to hide, you need to eat things that are the same color as your environment. Otherwise, it's not camouflage. It like could go under their skin or something. Like the way they describe it is like the proteins from what they ate could travel through their blood vessels and change their color of what they ate. But what's the evolutionary advantage of that? That's not camouflage, though. I don't know. Because if you don't have, like, a green environment and you eat something, like, pink, then... Well, maybe it's, like, a mating thing. Like, if you want to impress a female, you eat, like, a whole bag of Jelly Bellies. So, like, all the colors. All the colors of the wind. Yeah. Wow. But actually, they don't actually need to mate much because they're self-fertilizing hermaphrodites. So then again, what is the point of the color changing? I don't know. But that's why they're kind of dangerous. Cause these these things can multiply pretty quickly. They can they can they can, they can basically them, like asexual. Yeah, yeah, asexual reproduction, right? Yeah, asexual reproduction. Yeah, but they were known for hiding in garbage. They managed to transport themselves off of Vodrin as itty bitty larvas. Yeah, and they could sneak into basically any water source, someone's boot or something. Yeah, and they would find their way out and into wherever water source they could find, which usually tended to be garbage piles. Oh, because garbage is all wet and gross. Yeah. They couldn't just go to like a nice lake or a river or... They could live off basically any organic matter. And so what's full of organic matter usually? A garbage Mm, or a sewer. Or a sewer. So they're usually found there. which gave them living on like trash and poop? Yeah, they're... they're, But they're part of the... Does that mean they'd always be trash and poop colored? That's why the one in in A New Hope is brown. Ew. He was eating Stormtrooper poops. Does that mean that Han Solo and Princess Leia and Luke Skywalker were all in poop? I don't know. They were wallowing around in feces. I always kind of wondered where all that garbage came from in there. Like, what, what, were, they, what were they throwing away it on the desert? It was so liquidy. Well, it was liquidy, yeah. But there's like all these big panels and stuff. Like, what are they getting rid of here? There's a big pole in there. It seems like it was just a storage room. And then after a while, it flooded. It and they're like, it's flooded, garbage and they're now. like, it's too nasty. It's we're going to compact this stuff. But anywho, they gave them the nicknames Garbage Squids, Sewage Squids, or Trash Monsters. That sounds like what your students would call you when you worked at the elementary school. <sighs> okay. I had a kindergarten student who told me I was a trash mermaid because she's five and five-year-olds are insane. And I asked her, so what does that mean? He's like, well, you swim around in garbage, so you're a trash mermaid. And you're like, when have you seen me swim in garbage? But Pray tell. I laughed because it was very funny because five-year-olds say the darndest things. You are a trash mermaid, though. I am. I am. I'm like a Dianaga. I have my lower half's a Dianaga, and I swim in garbage and yeah. eat poop. That's what I do. Um, their flesh could actually be eaten, though, despite it like being able to absorb anything they ate. And it was kind of a delicacy, or at least something that was edible. And they were used to make something called a Dianaga pie. 
And their spleens were used to make Dainaga tea. Ew, uh, I don't want to drink it. It's been eating poop. Now, if you ever try to eat one, you got to be careful, though, because... You they have to be Well, yes. But they have to be cooked carefully, because if you cook them wrong, you're going to activate the blood parasites in their tissue. Ugh! And you'll get those. It's like fugu. Yeah, exactly. So that's, I mean, they're pretty simple creatures. Only seen the one movie. They're in a ton of extra stories. They're in Shadows of the Empire. They're in all these comics and stuff, but... They're pretty straightforward. They're swamp monsters who have tentacles, eat trash. Uh, behind the scenes, though, George Lucas was not very happy with how the Dianaga turned out in A New Hope. Because in the original script, remember we talked about like the adventures of Starkiller yeah. and the Star Wars. The Dianaga was like this huge creature on Alderaan. And they, oh. had, and they combined that with the trash compactor on the Death Star to make the scene. And they couldn't make it as big and scary as he wanted. But I think it's better if you don't. I think it's better. Because then you can imagine whatever is under that garbage. Exactly. It's your imagination. George Lucas, somebody needs to explain to him, like, sometimes not seeing a thing is better. Your imagination is always going to be much better than the real thing. Well, not always, but a lot of the time. A lot of the time. Yeah. So anyway, Dianagas. That's my first monster of the week here. The next one we're talking about is a little less scary. We're talking about Tauntauns. I know Tauntaun. I tried to draw a Tauntaun once, like, from memory, and it looked like a giant upright schnauzer. Okay, they got to have basically like a kangaroo with horns. The horns, I think I remembered. And kind of like a like a dog face. Yeah, so like a giant upright schnauzer. Okay, yeah. That's Most like... schnauzers have horns and, and stuff. <laughs> well, I don't know what schnauzer you've seen, but... So this is our Empire Strikes Back representative. They were omnivorous reptomammals from the planet Hoth. Reptomammals, huh? That sounds made up. It is. So they're called reptomammal because they have both reptilian features and mammalian features. But you have to be one or the other. That's how, like, taxonomy well, works. Well, let's explain how a tauntaun's anatomy works. And again... Taxonomy doesn't work the same way in Star Wars, Joanna. I guess not, but okay, did they lay eggs or give birth to live young? Were they hot-blooded or cold-blooded? Let me explain. You're being so freaking impatient. All right. Slow your roll, Joanna. I just want to know about tauntauns. So they had no mammary glands and scaly skin. So there's your repto category. But they were warm-blooded and had a layer of blubber under their fur and gave birth to live young. Mammalian characteristics. But what were they feeding those live young if they had no nipples? We'll get to that in a sec. Okay. So they were very adaptive to their environment on Hoth, this incredibly cold, freezing planet. So they had a few things that helped them stay alive. For example, they had wide feet for running across icy surfaces, which are kind of acted like natural snowshoes. They had swiveling ears they could hear in like any direction. They had thick blubber, keep them warm. They had chambered lungs. They had two pairs of nostrils. This sounds like my sister's old dance instructor. Ooh, ice burn. He, well, I mean, he was large. He had swiveling ears. He had swiveling ears. He had chambered lungs. A layer of blubber under fur. Well, he was just like a very big dude. Okay. And kind of reptilian. All right. He was like He's a, 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 a creepy dude, yes. So they had two sets of nostrils. One set was larger and would heat the air they breathed in while they were running around. After the larger set would close, the smaller set would open up when they were relaxing or sleeping. Oh. Because the big ones would get too much snow in them. They had to close them while they were sleeping. That... So they had a digestive system that excreted waste as oils through their skin pores, which made a distinctive odor. So remember yeah. they say, I thought they smelled bad on the outside? Yes. That's why. They're giving uh... off oil through their pores. They had a unique blood mixture that was resistant to the tundra winds that kept their organs from freezing. Okay. So really warm-blooded. Really warm-blooded, so that's why he puts Luke inside it. And they can run up to 90 kilometers an hour, which is about 55 miles per hour. Whoa, in the snow? Yeah. Oh my god. It probably had to be like flat and like you straight. You saw like that thing running at you at 55 miles an hour? Yeah. Booking at you. It'd be great, right? Heart attack. So Tauntauns were matriarchal animals. They had a, a herd mother and they lived in herds of 20 to 30 individuals. And they gave birth at two young at a time. 
Oh, like bears. Like bears, yeah. That occurred twice in one half year, so they gave four babies a year. Oh, they're quick breeding. Yeah, and like you asked earlier, how did they feed them? They didn't have mammary glands. Right. Well, tauntauns could regurgitate a form of milk produced in their crops. In their their crops? Like their fields that they farmed? <laughs> Wait. Wait. I didn't realize Tauntauns were an agricultural society. Produced in their crops. Now, did in they their mean... crops? Now, did they like mean... Like their barley? They ate the barley? Let me, and... let me see if there's another definition of this that I'm missing. Because I just copy and pasted that sentence because it was so weird. It's the body. Ryan just Googled crops the body. Oh, so it's in animals. Oh. Uh... Okay. It's a thin-walled, expanded portion of the alimentary tract used for the storage of food prior to digestion. So, so it's part of their intestines. Part of their digestive system. Kind of like when, when birds like regurgitate into their babies. Or owls make a pellet. Yeah. Okay, so that makes a lot more sense than what we were thinking. I was literally picturing tauntauns like tilling fields and then like eating corn cobs and then regurgitating. Yeah. <laughs> I should look that up ahead They're of time. Crops. Yeah, I imagine little straw hats and like driving oh, a tractor oh, across yeah, the snow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They tended to be ill-tempered creatures and very stubborn. And they got in lots of fights with their horns. They'd headbutt each other all the time like goats. During mating season, the females would attack the other females by spitting on them. But it wasn't like poison spit. It just kind of smelled bad, but it was really bad because it could freeze in their eyes and blind them during oh, mating season. They'd be like, no! Yeah. I don't know who I'm mating with! I got spit in my eyes! And the, the spit E would be all, oh, I can't see! And the spit would be like, I'm off to steal your man! But then wouldn't it be more effective to spit in the eyes of the male so he doesn't know that he's mating with you oh. instead of his lady? Tauntauns really should have talked to me when they were evolving their mating the, behaviors. Their spitting behaviors. <laughs> yes. So their main predator, wampas. Yeah. Obviously, the uh-huh. big snow monsters. Ultrasonic frequencies that certain droids gave off irritated the tauntauns, and they'd hit them with their tails. So it made them really good for scouting missions for the rebels. Like I bet. Because if there's any Imperial probe droids around, they just would smack them with their tails. Like, Whack! Right? Yeah. That's a tauntaun. Some behind-the-scenes stuff. There was a few concepts before they became the kind of snow kangaroo they are now. Right. Originally, they were going to be like a giant rodent or a giant like lizard reptile thing. They actually made models of them. So here's some examples of the concept art Whoa. for a tauntaun. The first one I can kind of see. Like the rat-looking one? Yeah, the rat. Well, it's like a, it's like an upright wombat with like a lion's tail. Yeah. But then the second one, man, it's, like it's a, just like a dinosaur with like an anteater face. And here's a fun fact. So Ben Burt explained how he made the sounds of the tauntauns. Again, yeah. Ben Burt, I bring him up all the time. He's my the sound guy. Yeah, he's like your hero. He's man. awesome, man. Uh, he made the sounds of a tauntaun by manipulating the vocal stylings of an Asian sea otter. Did it specifically have to be an Asian one? Apparently. I can actually play some for you. Yeah, let's hear it. That's what they sound like? Well, Asian they, sea he modified it. Right. Ben Burt took that and kind of like tweaked it. <laughs> Most of the animals in Star Wars are sounds from other animals, as we've talked about before with the... Uh, I mean, yeah, Lord the, of the Rings did that too. Sarlacc Pit was the crew's stomachs gurgling. And it's probably the best way to do it. Absolutely. All right. Now, my last one is a representative from Return of the Jedi, which... Is probably the most prominent one. And one I've talked about a little bit before. Yeah. Talk about rancors. Not Butch the Rancor Dragon, but just rancors. Rank- Butch is included in this, but 
rancors as a as a umbrella for this repto mammal again another repto mammal family this is a big thing in hut space apparently apparently so these guys are from dathomir we talked about before if you listen to our witches of dathomir episode i explained yeah. how how they tamed them and, and that weird soul bond with the witches yeah 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 so an average height in a rancor we're talking between five and ten meters yeah or five and 19 meters depending on the source so it's like a huge difference either, but okay. either between 16 and 32 feet Tall or between 16 and 62 feet tall. Wow, what a range! Yeah, uh, average mass of 1,650 kilograms for a five meter specimen. So these boys weigh over 3,000 pounds. Wow. Yep. The repto mammals, they gave birth to two at a time, much like a tauntaun. Oh, surprisingly. Maybe this is a repto mammal thing. They did not suckle their young, though. No mammary glands. Again. They hatched from eggs, however. Not they hatch from eggs, not live? Not live. That doesn't make sense. How could they be in the same class as well, Tauntauns, then? Don't get to it. Come on. Do they get milk from their crops? Good question. Um, but the way it's kind of, I found this kind of cute. It talked about how baby rancors are. They're, first of all, they're three meters tall babies. Whoa. <laughs> wow. Sorry, mom. Wait, but mom's they're, only five meters tall, well, baby, at the smallest. They weigh, they weigh an egg, right? That's a big egg. Yeah. That's like, Kiwi eggs. You know kiwi eggs? Like they'll take up the mom's like whole body. Yeah, I showed yeah, you a picture of that. Yeah. Same with the rancor. To get around, they would ride on their mom. And so one would clutch onto the mom's back. Yeah. One would clutch onto the mom's belly. But she's literally carrying like... So there's a picture of mom rancor. Oh my God. Carrying her two little babies. That's a lot of weight on her. Well, yeah. Because if she's five meters and they're three meters... So they have motherly instincts. That's nice. Most animals do. Though it was also not entirely unheard of for a mother to eat her young. Yeah. In a pinch, you know? Great. So they're like hamsters. Yeah, yeah, big old scary hamsters. Giant scary hamsters is what rancors are. Rancors walked on two stubby legs and Uh have long grabbing arms with long extended fingers for grabbing their prey. But they're also known to walk on all fours, like a monkey. Okay. The skin of a rancor was tough, enough to deflect even blaster bolts. And so it made them pretty much unkillable. So like olifants. Yeah, like olifants. It also made them a great source of leather for making, like, cool jackets and vests and stuff. Because nothing's going to bust Yeah, through nothing's going to break a Rancor leather jacket. But you, you have to take a Rancor down first. That's what Greedo had. He, a oh, Rancor leather yeah. jacket. Oh, man. And Han Solo took it from him. No wonder he was so mad. How's he going to get another Rancor right. to make a jacket out of? That, that's a big thing to get. He stole his Letterman's, his Rancor Letterman's jacket. They had a symbiotic relationship with these animals called gibbet birds. Okay. They would clean their teeth. Oh. For the rancors. And the, so the rancors got a little dental work done and the birds got a meal. Everybody wins. Very good. So they're usually considered unintelligent beasts. Uh-huh. But as we talked about in our Dathomir episode, they actually were semi-sentient. and Semi-sentient. And some witches taught rancors how to read and write. But all rancors were caring creatures for their young. They mourned their family members when they died. And they passed on something of an oral tradition. Like, I feel like that's... Chimpan- okay, see, chimpanzees, so chimpanzees, I would argue, are, like, sentient. Yeah. Because they can pass the mirror test. Yeah. Um, among other things. And they can, to a certain extent, understand the concept of deception. But we can't teach them to, like, read and write. We can teach them to sign. I mean, that was some Dathomir witch magic, I think, involved. Okay. Like, the force helping them I get I mean, this was because these things would have to be far from, I mean, being only semi-sentient. They would have to be smarter than chimpanzees. Right. Listen to our Witches of Dathomir episode. It's very silly. Um, <laughs> okay. Like the witches thing. I mean, it's Star Wars. Witches, relax about it. Witches taming the Rancors is super cool up until that point, And then it's like, you lost me. You lost me at the reading and writing. 
So they were native to Dathomir, but made it off-world. They were spread across the galaxy on all kinds of planets as people took them as paths or as prizes and let them loose other places. But most worlds did not recognize their sapience. Only the witches of Dathomir realized that how smart they were. But as it spread across the galaxy, subspecies of rancors began to develop. So, for example, there was the jungle rancor, which looks really weird. <laughs> what am I looking at? This looks weird. Yeah. There's also an It a- looks like a three-year-old drew it. Nope, it's from... Because the proportions are really wacky. It's from a cartoon. It's from the uh, Star Wars Rebels cartoon. There's also an amphibious version called a track whore. I can parse that one. Right. And there was a few other ones that were kind of near mythical, like the bull rancor of Felucia. Near mythical? What does that mean? It existed, but it was very rare. It was a, basically a white rancor with that was huge with these big old tusks. Ooh. And of course, uh, the Rancor Dragon, a species of which Butch belonged. Because Butch was a Rancor Dragon. Lest we forget. Yeah, Rancors were incredibly good fighters, and like obviously they were major predators, so they were highly, highly prized in the criminal underworld. It's like drug lords having a tiger. Exactly. Yeah. The most famous, obviously, is Jabba's pet Rancor. Yeah. Which is raised by a man named Malakili. Malakili. Do you know Malakili? Did you tell me about Malakili before? I'm going to tell you about him right now. Okay. Let me hear it. So he's a bright-eyed boy from Corellia who was fascinated by animals at an early age. Yeah. When he became a little older, he joined Gargon the Hutt's Circus Horrificus. Sounds like a promising name. Yeah. And he became their star beast handler and monster tamer. Because he had this, this, this nice touch. He was a nice soft boy who could just calm any ferocious beast. He knew when their, where their limits were. He could kind of read them, you know? He was like a rancor whisperer kind okay, of guy. Okay, I like it. However... How do you end up working for a sleaze like Java, though? Well, we're going to talk about that. So the Circus Horrificus had a a show on Narshada. Yeah. And all was going according to plan until one of the animals got loose and killed 12 spectators. No! Where were you on that, nice soft boy? And so Malakili kind of lost his luster after that. And Gargon the Hutt sold him to Jabba. Again, oh, his, his paperwork no. said he was transferred. But he was sold. Again, you know how huts work? Oh, know, yeah. Basically sold to Jabba as a slave because Jabba had just gotten a new rancor, which is completely untamed. Wild beast. Messing up his palace. Yeah. Let's bring in this young, soft boy to train this this ferocious creature. And luckily enough, Malakili and the rancor bonded almost immediately. Oh, the rancor's like, oh, this. I love this nice soft boy. Yeah, Malakili viewed the rancor as a kind-hearted creature and his friend. Kind-hearted? Yeah, he saw the best in every creature. Well, that's sweet, but he literally, like, it literally eats people, Well, so. that was only because Jabba wanted it to be trained for bloodshed. He recognized it as a friend. He recognized it as sapience. Okay. He understood the other people wanted to see it be a, a killing machine. He saw it as a friend. As a friend. His best friend, even. Yeah. A boy in his rancor. They ate meals together. The rancor let him tend to his wounds. They would sleep in the same room sometimes. So the rancor wouldn't hurt him. No, they're best buds. They're pals. But then Jabba got the bright idea. His rancor was, you know, looking really good. He says, I wonder what would happen if I fought my rancor against a crate dragon. And Malakili's like, oh no, that's almost definitely going to kill my buddy. Yeah. And so he had some plans to defect and take his rancor with him and go to Lady Valerian, which is, as you're talked about before, was Jabba's rival. Oh yeah, right. From the Figure and Dan story. She's we the about. one that like sto- that swiped his band. She's like the big warthog woman. Yes. Who swiped his band. Yes. One person in Jabba's court threatened him with blackmail after he found out about his plans. So Malakili fed him to the Rancor. Oh, I, that's justifiable. I think it's fine. Uh, I think it's fine. Yeah. I think there's nothing wrong with that. But then, 
in 3ABY, Jabba's yes. visited by this slick dude wearing all black and a cape, and he throws him in the pit, and this this so-called Jedi fights the Rancor, and what do you know, he crushes its skull in the porticullis. Little snot-nosed brat, who is he? And so that... that fa- I want to fight him. That, that must be the worst character in the movie. So that, that chubby, sweaty, shirtless guy who cries? Yes. That's Malakili. He's crying over his buddy being killed. Oh, no. Yeah, it's so sad. Luke, you little bitch. You killed his best friend. So, luckily for Malakili, he was not on the sail barge when it blew up. Oh, good. He's back at the palace. And so, after it blew up, he's like, score, my time's now. I got to get out of here. So, he escaped with Jabba's chef. And they went and started a restaurant in Mos Eisley. Oh, cool. Called, so, called the Crystal Moon. It became the finest establishment in the area. But I bet he still mourned the loss of his one true friend. His one true friend, the Rancor, yeah. That's a really sad story, Ryan. I know. Are you gonna end- You're not going to end it on that note, are you? I want to end it on some fun behind-the-scenes stuff. The concept for the Rancor, it was described as a cross between a bear and a potato. <laughs> I, I think the cross between the bear and the potato is that thing that Anakin rides in episode two. Maybe when he's closer. in the field on Naboo with Padme. That's more of a cow and a potato, though. Now, the sound of a Rancor, very familiar noise. Let me play that for you. That is unmistakably a Rancor. What kind of animal do you think that came from? Walrus. Try again. Elephant. Try again. A potato. <laughs> You're close. <laughs> it, those came from Ben Burt's neighbor's wiener dog. We came from a wiener dog? Yes. That's pretty close to a potato. So he we went over to his neighbor's house, recorded the, the dachshund making noises, and then pitched them down, slowed them down, and modulated it. And that's how he made the rancor's noises. Wiener dogs are terrifying. If you make them sound like that, yeah. Oh my god. Also, the idea of his, his master crying, like obviously that's in Return of the Jedi. Yes. Malachili's in there as unnamed character crying. Yes. And that was in the script because George Lucas is quoted as saying in the making of Return of the Jedi book, he said, I like the idea that everyone loves someone. And even the worst, most horrible monster you can imagine was loved by his keeper. And the Rancor probably loved his keeper back. That's so sweet. Yeah. So that was... My beautiful bestiary. And so... <laughs> And I can do more. There's so many creatures. There's in so you have a lot. You have a ton. I feel like there's a finite number of creatures in Tolkien, but you could do that for an eternity, probably. Probably. I mean, like our best series may be of equal beauty, but yours is of greater breadth. Yeah, yours has depth. Mine has the width. The width of an ocean. My my widthy bestiary. Yep. So those are our bestiaries. I hope you all enjoyed our beautiful bestiaries this week. I hope they're pretty beautiful. But now we have to move into our worst name challenge. The worst, the worst, the worst, the worst, the worst name challenge. I love that theme song. So last week we pitted our new champion, not Lewiski, Papanoida, versus our new challenger, Groin the Dwarf. And the answer probably won't surprise you. Groin came out on top in both categories. It's hard to beat Groin. So Groin is our champion, not Lewiski Papanoida is stepping down. I have to set up a new challenger. A new challenger is entering the battle arena. So I'm going to read a bit. There's a great article on Game Informer. It's called Fall of the Empire, How Inner Turmoil Brought Down LucasArts. Oh. And so basically this article describes how LucasArts had kind of be- was this amazing company in the 90s, put out great Star Wars games and point-and-click adventure games, how they basically kind of run into the ground. During the making of The Force Unleashed, which is about a Jedi who is Darth Vader's apprentice, uh-huh. they asked George Lucas, because George Lucas had a ton of input on these games. He'd come in randomly to LucasArts and just kind of like point out things he didn't like. Like there's an example of they had to rewrite an entire game because he wanted the character to be named BJ Dart. <laughs> which is not the name I'm using, but it's very bad. 
yeah, so he originally, the character was named like Mason Briggs. And he's like, no, no, BJ Dart would sound cooler. And then he, and the, the, the crew's like, we can't call him BJ Dart. <laughs> so he came up with Jet Brody, which he liked better. So It's better than BJ Dart. Yeah. But anyway, he would come in and give input. And so one time when he came in, while they were working on The Force Unleashed, they thought it'd be really cool if this character, nicknamed Starkiller, yeah. would get a Darth title. Here's the description from the developer. The team threw a Hail Mary to George, saying the name would have to have more credibility if the apprentice had a Darth title. Lucas agreed that the situation made sense for Sith royalty and offered up two Darth titles for the team to choose from. He threw out Darth Insanius and Darth Icky. <laughs> there was a pregnant pause in the room after that. People waiting for George to say, just kidding, but it never came. He has moved on to another point. So they didn't use those names in the game. They kept them Star Killer. But I'm putting forth against growing Darth Icky. Darth Icky? Is it literally spelled I C K Y? Yep. Like, how in his mind does that sound cool? What about Darth Dart? She just made BJ Dart. Darth, D- Darth. Darth BJ. Darth, Darth BJ. So my challenger to groin, again, he's called Star Killer, but in my heart, he's Darth Icky. Darth Icky, yeah. Darth Icky. And and so you remember, I think, is is this the story where, like, they just didn't end up making him a Darth because the names were so dumb? They're yep, just like, they just, we're like, not going to do that. No, we're just going to keep him Star Killer. Yes. Oh, that's going to be a really, really, really hard one to beat. It's a really good article on Game Informer. You should read the whole thing if you're interested in any Star Wars video games. We can post it on Facebook. Yeah, I, I think it's a pretty good one. Only you can prevent forest fires, and only you can decide which one of these names is going to reign supreme. Which are undertakings of equal import, in my opinion. Honestly, Yes. Go on our Facebook or on our Twitter and vote for either Groin the Dwarf or Darth Icky. And while you're at it, drop us a line at whatslightsabersprecious at gmail.com or visit our whole ass website at www.whatslightsabersprecious.com. Yeah, we'd love to hear if you have any questions or, or mail for us or even suggestions for future episodes. So... Get a hold of us. It'd be great. If you want to also be helpful, you can go on Apple Podcasts and rate us up. I kind of stopped doing it for a while, but I'm going to bring it up again. If you rate us up, let us know, and we will do something cool for you. A shout-out on the air. And, yeah, that's all we got for today. That's all we got for today. Stay tuned, because next week, we're going to start our spooky October episodes. (laughs) It's going to be nothing. It's going to be a real spook fest for an entire month. You thought, my beautiful best, Jenny. Was spooky? You ain't seen nothing yet. You ain't seen nothing yet. It's gonna get way spookier. Enjoy your last week without terror before the shadow descends over us into spooky October. So poetic. See you later, Hobwalks. If you dare. <laughs> <laughs>